August 11, 1978, Volcom Hills, northwest of Sydney. 28-year-old John Ernest Cribb, out on parole for armed robbery, abducts Avalda Connell, 39, who had just come home in her car with two of her six children, Sally, 10, and Damien, 4. What happens next would shock the nation. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Okay, tonight we go back to 1978 to a shocking case that unfolded in Borkham Hills, Sydney which is a sem- was a semi-rural town about 27 kilometres or 17 miles northwest of Sydney. First, I'll give you a bit of background into the Connell family. Paul and Valda Connell had six children, Gary, 17, Linda, 16, Lisa, 14, Alison, 12, Sally, 10 and Damien, 4. They were a church-going and community-oriented family that had a strong bond and would often invite neighbours to take trips to the beach. They lived in Chapel Lane, Borkham Hills, and as I said before, this was a semi-rural area, just starting to become developed, and the Connells were lucky enough to live on one of the few remaining two-hectare or five-acre blocks of land. They had the usual farm animals, such as cows, horses, goats and a pig, and they also had ducks and would go eeling in the dam. So it was an idyllic lifestyle for the family of six. It's Friday the 11th of August in the early afternoon. 39-year-old Valda Connell had been playing her usual Friday tennis at the Crestwood Courts near her house. After the game... And still wearing her white tennis dress, she drove her metallic gold 1974 Holden Kingswood sedan with registration VC703 to pick up her four-year-old son Damien from school. Valda then drove to her friend's place where her ten-year-old daughter Sally was waiting. All three then drove the short distance towards their family home. That same afternoon, 28-year-old John Ernest Cribb, out on parole only a month for armed robbery, was lurking around the area looking for houses to break into. He was on parole after serving six years of a nine-year sentence for armed robbery. He was supposed to be staying with his mother, but had moved out of her house and had gone to live with his sister in Borkham Hills. He was walking around the area looking for places to rob and had tried two properties without success and then he came across the Connell's house. No one was home so he went to a side window and using the knife he was carrying cut open a fly screen window and gained entry into the house. 
He then went about ransacking the place for whatever he could get his hands on and still be able to carry it out of the house. He filled a suitcase with electrical items, including a cassette player, digital clock, and found about $52 in cash. He also got hold of Paul Connell's double-barreled shotgun. Now, a cassette player is what we used to listen to music on. The music was recorded onto a reel of magnetic tape, which held about 10 songs, and you would then flip it over in the cassette player to play the other side. I bet some of you feel old now. Anyway, as Crib was collecting up his takings and was getting ready to leave the property, Valda drove into the driveway with four-year-old son Damien and ten-year-old daughter Sally that she'd just collected after a tennis game, as I'd mentioned before. Crib, now armed with a double-barrel shotgun, heard the car pull up and he had to make a decision on what to do. He'd just been released from jail and didn't want to go back. As Valder pulled up and stopped the car, Crib burst out from the side of the house and screamed, Don't move, stay in the car! All the while pointing the shotgun at the three terrified family members. He then grabbed the suitcase full of stolen goods, put it in the boot or trunk of the car, forced Valder at gunpoint to move over to the passenger seat and then he jumped in the car and drove off. So here we have Valder, Sally and Damien being driven by Crib at gunpoint in their family car. Now Crib had just done time for a string of armed robberies where he would hold people at gunpoint in their homes, rob the place and then take off in their own car. So this is what you would call his M.O. Okay, so now Crib has three terrified hostages in the car and he drives off north towards Barara Waters, which is about 28 kilometres or 17 miles north of the Connell home. Crib is familiar with the area as this is where his girlfriend lives. With few roads and thick bushland, Crib pulls the car over and using his knife, he cuts one of Valder's dresses, which he had on the back seat, into strips. He then forces Valder and Damien out of the car, where he ties them up and gags them. He then drives off with Sally still in the car. He drives to a service station and asks Sally to tell him their home phone number. He then called the number, and Paul Connell which is Valda's husband, answered it. At this stage, Paul, who'd been out since 8.30am that day fixing a neighbour's fence and had then gone to the local police boys' club to train for the upcoming city-to-surf race, had noticed that several bedrooms had been roughly searched and items were missing. Before he could think too much about that, the phone rang. It was Crib. Crib told Paul that his name was Warren. He was having an affair with Valda and that she had left him and taken two of the kids. Crib went on to say that he'd taken the missing items and had wished he had taken the colour TV as well. You see, 
Colour TV was only introduced in Australia in March of 1975, and not everyone had colour TV sets. Just saying, Mum and Dad. So Crib, posing as Warren, told Paul that he would call later and discuss what to do with the two kids and where to send their clothes. Crib then hung up the phone, and Paul, who now had the rest of the kids except Gary listening in on the phone call, he turned to him and told him, either Mum has left us or something terrible has happened. Paul knows Valda would not do this, as it was a cold day and she'd not taken any warm clothes for the kids. Plus, it was totally out of character for her to do something like this. So Paul immediately contacts police. When police arrived, they start their investigation, which involved taking fingerprints. Now back then, there was no computer database where they could quickly match fingerprints, and it was a slow and tedious manual job, which could take weeks. Police put out an all-points bulletin to try and locate Valder's gold Holden sedan. So after Crib makes that phone call, he drives back to where he left Valder and Damien and waits until dark. Once dark, Crib with Valder, Sally and Damien sets off north and about an hour later at Central Mangrove, the car runs out of petrol. Crib gets Valder to help him push the car off the side of the road. With the two children still in the car, Crib drags Valder at knife point into the bushes where he rapes the five foot two inch mother of six. All the while, Valder is pleading with Cribs not to hurt her children. After he finished, he put Valder back in the car with the two kids, threatened them not to do anything, and went off in search of petrol. Now this car is in a pretty remote place, and being bound, gagged and extremely traumatised, Valda and the two kids were unable to make an escape. Cribs returned with petrol about an hour later and continued his journey north with Valda and the two children. He drives another four and a half hours to a place called Ellenborough Falls. He's familiar with the area as his parents live at Killerback Creek around an hour's drive away, and they had taken a family outing at the falls just the week before. After a short time at Ellenborough Falls, Crib decides to drive off towards Comboyne, which is about 43 kilometres or 26 miles east. Just before he gets to Comboyne, at around 1am, Crib tells Valda that he's going to drop them off soon, and tells her where she can get help. But then Crib changes his mind, turns the car around, and heads back towards Ellenborough Falls. He finds a dirt road and then stops the car. He marches Valda and her children a distance off the isolated road and tells them to stay there and wait until he comes back to get them the next day, where he will let them go. Now, remember, this is winter in Australia and the temperature overnight is going to be about 10 degrees centigrade or 50 degrees Fahrenheit. 
So Cribs is leaving them there without warm clothes and without having eaten or having any water overnight. Truly a scumbag. Well, after leaving them there and driving south towards Newcastle, Cribs starts to think that it was not such a good idea. He knew that they would be able to identify him reasonably easily and he was pretty sure he had even mentioned his name to Valder at some stage. He decides to turn back. You can imagine when Valder sees Headlight's approach that she may have thought that it was someone who she, she could try to signal for her rescue. But we all know what our own cars sound like. She knew it was Crib returning. Crib got out of the car and walked towards the mother and her two children, who were still bound and gagged. He stabbed Valda 13 times in the chest, and Valda had defensive wounds, so she did try to put up a struggle. He then turned to four-year-old Damien and stabbed him twice in the chest, and then he stabbed 10-year-old Sally six times in the chest. Cribs then returns to the car covered in blood. He has cut his finger while killing the three and has also stabbed himself in the leg. It's 2am now and he drives off to his parents' place and sneaks in the back door and gets clean clothes and washes up. He goes to his father's tool shed and grabs a shovel and returns to bury the bodies of Valda Sally and Damien. When he gets there, he finds that the ground is too hard to dig and so he puts the bodies in the boot or the trunk of the car and drives off. He decides to go to a sandy area at Caves Beach south of Newcastle. This is about a three-hour drive south. He arrives in the morning and starts to dig a grave. However, He's disturbed by a couple of boys riding their bikes. They ask what he's doing and Crib tells him that he's burying his dead dog. This spooks Crib and he decides to drive off and find another burial ground. As the whole area is very sandy, Crib bogs the car and tries he will, he can't get it out. He leaves the car with the body still in the boot or trunk and walks off to the main road where he hitches a ride to the local service station to get a tow truck. At around 7am, he's dropped off at Swansea service station where he's able to get a tow truck that drives him back to the stranded car and he's able to get it free. At the time, the towie notices the cut on Crib's hand and leg and suggests he goes to the hospital to get it looked at. Crib goes to Belmont Hospital and gets his finger and leg stitched up. He then goes on to the now defunct Mawson Hotel on Kays Beach and starts drinking for the rest of the morning and into the afternoon, chatting with locals. After getting pissed and being knocked back by one of the local girls, Crib got in the car and remember, there's still three bodies in the boot and drove off to the service station he had called into earlier to get the tow truck to fill up with petrol. Here he told the attendant that he was heading off to Sydney. 
The attendant could tell he was pissed and suggested not to drive. However, Crib got back into the car and headed off to Sydney. Now, the old Pacific Highway in this location had a section called the S-Bends. It's here that the inebriated Crib lost control of the car and crashed over the embankment. The car was too far down and too damaged to be able to reverse it back up. So he walked back to the service station and asked for the tow truck guys that helped him earlier that day if they could come and pull the car out. The towies took Crib to where he'd crashed the car and as it was dark, they decided to leave it there and return in the morning. They drove Crib back to the service station at Swansea and he walked away. So, this is Saturday night, just over 24 hours since the ordeal began. Still, police are on the lookout for the car and have no idea who may have abducted Valor and the two children. So, Crib now decides to head off towards Wickham, about 24 kilometres or 15 miles north of the service station at Swansea where he had friends at Throsby Street. At around 7am Sunday the 13th of August, the towies attend the scene where Crib ran off the road. As they start to pull the car up the embankment, the boot springs open to reveal its grisly contents. The towies call police and a crime scene is established. Of course, the family and friends of the Connells are devastated. They heard the news just as they were about to head off to church. The bodies are removed and taken to Newcastle Morgue and the car taken and forensically examined. Here they find fingerprints and bloodstains and the shotgun on the back seat. The towies describe to police how the driver of the car had a cut finger and that they told him to go to Belmont Hospital to get it looked at. Police go to the hospital and find that Crib did get treatment there under his real name. Now, that's not the smartest thing to do. So, they are now able to quickly match the fingerprints they've been able to get from the house, the car and the shotgun with those of Cribs that are on file. So now police know who the perp is and of course they now know they are not just looking for a kidnapper but they're now on the manhunt for a murderer. Crib has slept Saturday night with his friends at Wickham and Sunday morning there are visitors to the house Bettina and Kerry Edson. They ask him about the bloodstains on his clothes and he tells them that he's been rue shooting and he smashed his car. Kerry had heard the news on the radio before she got to the Throsby Street residence, and she's very sus about this guy with a bandaged hand and bloodstains. She goes to call police, but Crib takes off to another house towards Union Street, Wickham, just around the corner. Here he knocks on the door. 37-year-old Margaret Shepherd answered the door, and was confronted by Crib, who said there'd been an accident involving some children and could he use the phone to call an ambulance. She let him in and he grabbed a knife 
and held it at Margaret's mother, 56-year-old Joyce Avery's throat. Later, at around 5.45pm, Margaret's daughter was able to escape and alert neighbours. Mr J Bennett and Mr M Marks were able to enter the house and rescue Margaret, but Cribb warned them to leave or he would kill the grandmother, Joyce. They left and called police. This would start a 10-hour siege with Cribb held up in the laundry with Joyce. During the siege, police allowed one of Cribb's friends who had worked with him at a disco to try and talk him out three times during the night, but he was unsuccessful. The laundry was situated in the middle of the building, with one small window facing the side of the house. Cribb turned out the light and kept the door ajar. More than 50 police, including a squad heavily armed and equipped with gas masks, axes, shotguns and armalite rifles, not only surrounded the building, but they were inside as well. During the night, Joyce had been given blankets, coffee and aspirins and was in good health. Early the next morning, police stormed into the laundry, knocking the washing machine onto Crib and rescued Joyce unharmed. Crib sustained a self-inflicted knife wound but was able to be taken into custody. Crib would be sent to a ward for the criminally insane at Morissette Hospital after a psychiatric evaluation. On Wednesday, April 4, 1979, Cribb and William John Monday, who was serving a 30-year prison term for kidnapping, rape and murder, escaped by soaring through the bars on the window of the maximum security wing of Morissette Hospital. It took them days to do and they were able to mask the noise by turning up the TV and radio. This wasn't the first time Cribb had escaped from jail. He had previously escaped while in Cessnock Jail June the 5th, 1974, five years earlier. Later that day, Cribb and Monday grabbed a cab driven by John Tudet and told him to drive them to Sydney's King's Cross, which is Sydney's red light district. As they got to the cross, Monday grabbed Tudet around the throat from behind and put a large hunting knife to his neck, causing lacerations. They then locked him in the boot and stole $84. On the night of April the 13th, 1979, Cribb, still on the run, approached two girls, one aged 16 and the other 17, who were waiting for a bus outside their Hakawa club in Bondi. Cribb pulled a sawn-off shotgun out of a bag and said to him, Get up quietly and walk across the street or I'll blow your heads off. Cribb, with the gun under his jacket, forced them into nearby Biltmore Hotel at Bondi Beach. As they walked in, Monday was startled. Cribb told the 17-year-old to lie on the bed and to take her clothes off. He then raped her. After that, he gave the gun to Monday, walked out and left a message for the girl's sister, who worked at the Hakoa Club, not to wait for her. 
Crib then returned and he took all of her money from her bag and then raped her again. He then told her to get into bed with Mundy and he raped her. Next morning, about 10.30am, Crib told Monday he would go get a car, but he did not return. This agitated Monday, and he, after raping the girl again, he tied them up and left around 9am on Sunday the 15th. The girls were able to free themselves and contact police. The 17-year-old had been a virgin. Over the 35-hour period, both girls were raped several times. Now what a traumatic experience those girls had and the trauma would have lasted their whole life. On the 18th of April, Crib was finally recaptured. He'd forced his way into a house at Kings Langley, west of Sydney. Now this was just 800 metres from the Connells house where all this had started. It was around 11am and at gunpoint, he demanded clothes and a razor from a housewife, Pamela Levy. While he was shaving, she ran out the back and alerted neighbours while Crib took off down the street and broke into an unoccupied house. Here, he helped himself to scotch and called the triple O emergency number and gave hoax sighting reports of himself to help put off police. Now, police were searching the area and it now included a helicopter. At 3.45pm, Mr Christie, a 38-year-old timber salesman, came home to see Crib in his house. Crib tied him up and stole his car. Christie was able to wriggle free and quickly call police. Once police were alerted, they located the stolen car and the chase was on. Eventually, Crib was able to get a bit of distance and decided to pull into a driveway of a house in Wentworthville. Two cops saw him and were able to arrest him before he could get his shotgun out of his bag. Eventually, Monday would also be recaptured, but I will concentrate on Crib from this point on. Now, before they were recaptured, the pair committed eight armed robberies and the kidnapping and rapes I just told you about. Cribb decided to plead guilty at his trial, but Cribb's defence counsel raises the issue of his mental state at the time of the murders. The judge dismisses this as a ground for defence. 22nd of May, Cribb received three live sentences after being convicted of the stabbing murders of Val Connell and her children Sally, 10, and Damien Four. He also received a 12-year sentence for raping Mrs Connell. At the time Cribb received his life terms, the sentences did not mean the term of his natural life. While he was in prison, Cribb was able to, be, to befriend one of the nuns which would come and see the prisoners. This nun fell under his spell and began to write pornographic letters to him. One that was intercepted from the nun went on to describe in lurid detail how she was going to give Crib a blowy until his eyes popped out during her next visit. Prison guards waited for the nun's head to disappear and waited until the final moments 
and then they burst in and busted them. I mean, what the fuck was she thinking, for fuck's sake? Crib also sent the girls he raped Christmas cards from prison. I mean, this guy is just a sick fuck. He also married the sister of a fellow inmate. I mean, what is wrong with these people, for fuck's sake? Now, every prisoner was able to get their prison sentence redetermined as part of the Truth in Sentencing legislation that came out in 1989. He applied for a set non-parole period in 1993. Cribb reckoned he'd become a good Christian in 1982 and he also tried to say he didn't rape Valda and in a letter to the court he said, These crimes were instigated by 14 and a half years of hate. The result of sexual assault perpetrated on myself at the age of 14. The murder of my best friend George Colvin in 1970-71. The denial by Val Connell that Sally was my daughter having told me 10 years previously that she was. So here he is, trying to blame everyone else for the narcissistic piece of shit he is, and he also has the gall to say Sally was actually his daughter, and that the anger he'd built up over the past 10 years of not being able to be with his daughter is why he killed Valda. What a piece of shit. The judge had none of that, thank God. He was scathing on the pack of lies contained in the letter, and said it was impossible for Cribb to have known Valda or or the Connells, and that his grotesque lies in particular showed Cribb's lack of contrition and heartless lack of sympathy, sympathy for the victims. He also rejected the favourable reports from psychologists, psychiatrists, prison guards and clergy, saying they've probably been duped by the applicants' claims of reformation. These Dickheads actually gave recommendations for him to be put out on parole. Now, with this truth in sentencing legislation, Cribb would be able to apply for a redetermination of his sentence every three years. Now, as you can imagine, if you were one of the victims or a family member, having everything dragged up every three years would be a sentence in itself. Thank God this law would be changed so the prisoners only get one chance to have their sentence redetermined and it was seen as a major victory for victims of crime. So, what is Cribb's chances of getting out on parole now, you may ask? None. This cunt is dead. Died in Goulburn Supermax Prison on the 21st of February 2018. A few days ago. So I'll finish up with a quote from Gary Connell, Valda and Paul's son. He said, One of the things we experienced, which was even more painful, was that you would have beautiful dreams, and you would have dreams about the good times. But then you would wake up and realise that your life had become a nightmare. And that's what the day would be. So that's about it for tonight's show. 
Now, remember, True Crime Island is a listener-supported show and is commercial-free for all. I'd like to thank the newest patrons, Renee and Sharon, for their support. If you want to become a patron of the island, just go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. All funds go directly back to the island. You can also do a one-off payment via PayPal, and you can do that by going to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. And I would love to thank Amber, who just did this, and thank you so much. Cryptocurrency, as I said, will be soon. If you want stickers or koozies, you need to email me directly, and my email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I can price it up for you according to postage. Now, I just checked. I've got 10 can coolers left and about 30 bottle ones, so be quick. All other merch, such as T-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage, and all that stuff is via the shop at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now, there's links to everything at my website, which is true, truecrimeisland.com. Again, you do not have to spend money to support the show. You can rate and review and share the love. The more people who know about the show, the better. If people don't know what a podcast is, then show them the way. Join the Facebook group. Just search for True Crime Island and join in the chat. We've also got Twitter and Instagram and the island handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat there, and there's many other podcasters you might have a chance to chat with as well. Hi to all the followers. Again, I'd like to remind you that True Crime Island is entered into the Australian Podcast Awards, and you can vote for the island in the popular vote category. Now, if everyone that listens votes for the island and it is your island, I will get the opportunity to yell boom vagalunga to the world. So go to the AustralianPodcastAwards.com, go to the popular vote link and vote for the island. Remember, it's your island and you as the listeners make this island what it is. And thanks to Julie, who's been getting all her friends grabbing their phones and making sure they vote. Guess what? I do have a promo this week for my podcaster friends at Mirths and Monsters. If you haven't heard this podcast, do yourself a favour and search for it on iTunes or your favourite podcatcher. Well, that's about all for tonight. So this has been Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night.
Well hello my friends, this is CK from the Mirths and Monsters podcast, proud partner of the Odd Audio Network. Join me, my companion Finn, and my occasionally satanically possessed cat Ray, puny models, as we investigate the real truths behind some of the most wonderful creatures you can imagine. Are trolls really that thick? Or is it just bad press? Are leprechauns really drunken bums? Uh. Sort of. But there's a lot more to find out. All you need to do is tune in to Mirths and Monsters podcast with me and Finn. Till next time, Slancha, your good health. <laughs>